Thanks for joining me for what is a very packed half chapter. We'll be in Romans 3, verses 1 through 18. Is there any advantage, then, in being one of the chosen people? Which actually takes us back before we can go further forward. In the last chapter, Paul pointed out many of the meanings he saw, both positive and negative, in his people's experience of being so chosen. They had the law against which they had sinned. Others didn't have it, and yet often lived up to it. His people had learned the ropes of their religion, and yet often forgot God. They'd leaned the weight of their hopes on cultural identity, not necessarily spiritual transformation. So, that's where he's been, and let's continue. Does circumcision mean anything? Yes, of course, a great deal in every way. And here, by the way, it's clear he's using circumcision as another way of describing their overall cultural identity. He goes on. You have only to think of one thing to begin with. It was the Jews to whom God's messages were entrusted. Now, this is something I am excited to talk about. Listen again. It was the Jews to whom God's messages were entrusted. Which messages? And about what? What might we describe as the Old Covenant, Old Testament message in its totality? Well, I would say, and here's some delusions of grandeur. I think I can, I can really take a stab at this, but again, I would say that the whole God to the Jews message of the Old Covenant can be encapsulated in seven statements from God to mankind. Here they are. I am. I am good. I love you. You are mine. I will redeem you. It is life to follow me. And finally, we can be together forever. Three statements about his existence and nature, one about our truest identity, and three more about how he bridges the seemingly impossible divide between us. In fact, humor me. Here is an Old Testament, Old Covenant journey through references that speak to each of these statements. This is how God spoke to his chosen people. Number one, I am. Exodus 3, 13 and 14. Then Moses said to God, as God, by the way, flamed as fire in a burning bush. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of our fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Number two, I am good. Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Three, I love you. Isaiah 54.10. 
For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. 4. You are mine. Ezekiel 18.4 Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. Number 5. I will redeem you. Isaiah 43, 1 and 25. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. 6. It is life to follow me. Jeremiah 29:11-13. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Finally, number seven, we can be together forever. Habakkuk uh, 1.12 Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. You see, friends, these were the sorts of messages entrusted to the hearts of the Hebrews throughout all Old Covenant history. So yes, this is part of one advantage of their Jewish birthright, and I'm going to continue to read on here. Some of them were undoubtedly faithless, but what then? Can you imagine that their faithlessness could disturb the faithfulness of God? Of course not. Let us think of God as true, even if every living man be proved a liar. Remember the scripture? That thou mightest be justified in thy words, and mightest prevail when thou comest into judgment. I found myself strangely moved by that little section this week. It caused me to to picture God, forever perfect in the perfection of his perfect faithfulness, as he watches the way we so consistently prove ourselves faithless. God, the very definition of the word trustworthy. We almost daily questioning the worthiness of trusting him. And this is where I get weird, so bear with me. Because in my mind's eye, and in presence of his wondrous, undisturbable faithfulness, a little parable began to form itself in my heart. Do you remember a couple years ago, if you're part of the Anchor Fellowship, when we considered the power of parables back in the book of Matthew, and I had us listen to one that none of us had ever heard before? I'll just always remember the richness of our conversation that particular Sunday. So, in view of the perfect faithfulness of God, and in light of our endless propensity to forget all about it, I give you, for its first hearing in all human history, The parable of the mountain and the speck. There once 
was a mighty mountain, the tallest in the world. Its heights were so high that no eye had ever seen them. Its craggy granite summit was wreathed around with clouds. Nothing in all the world could compare to this most permanent peak. On the other side of the world lived a grain of sand. This speck was one of hundreds of billions of other similar specks. Every day, the grain would rise and fall with the tides. It would flow and tumble and toss with the other sand around it. Until the sand grain heard the voice of the mountain. You are no grain of sand, my little one. You are part of me, a fleck of granite, permanent. Let me bring you home. And with that, a divine wind, a mighty blast of air from the mountain's summit, picked up the speck and carried it all the way to the foot of the mountain. It rested now, granite to granite, like to like. It was invited to enjoy its new permanent home forever. Around it were all the others who'd found their true identity. All was joy and peace and enjoyment now. Time passed. But then doubts began to rise. I don't look the same as all these other kinds of granite. Is the mountain really the tallest, best, truest in the world? I miss the tumble and toss and togetherness of the seashore. Perhaps I might just go back. The voice of the mountain spoke to the speck again. I will never move, change, or ever forget you. I am the life, the truth, the place to live. You have entertained your doubts now, little speck. I am unchangeable towards you. How, where will you choose to live? And then I'll read again to you, friends. Some of them were undoubtedly faithless, but what then? Can you imagine that their faithlessness could disturb the faithfulness of God? Of course not. Let us think of God as true, even if every living man be proved a liar. Let's read on. But if our wickedness advertises the goodness of God, do we feel that God is being unfair to punish us in return? I'm using a human tit-for-tat argument. Not a bit of it. What sort of a person would God be then to judge the world? It is like saying that if my lying throws into sharp relief the truth of God and, so to speak, enhances his reputation, then why should he repay me by judging me a sinner? Similarly, why not do evil that good may be, by contrast, all the more conspicuous and valuable? As a matter of fact, I am reported as urging this very thing by some slanderously and others quite seriously. But of course, such an argument is quite properly condemned. 
And by the way, not only by Paul. Throughout Christian history, almost every great thinker has thought and written about this continuum between our sin, God's grace, and their corollary results. But in my own reading, I don't think anyone has ever attacked these sorts of false claims and false living that Paul is pointing to here quite as effectively as Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Here he is, and he's writing in The Cost of Discipleship. I'm sure many of you have read this before. He writes, Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Grace alone does everything, they say, and so everything can remain as it was before. All for sin could not atone. The world goes on in the same old way, and we are still sinners even in the best life as Luther said. Well then, let the Christian live like the rest of the world. Let him model himself on the world's standards in every sphere of life and not presumptuously aspire to live a different life under grace from the old life under sin. Then this is a little further down, but he's still speaking in that same sort of ironic tone. Let him be comforted and rest assured in his possession of this grace, For grace alone does everything. Instead of following Christ, let the Christian enjoy the consolations of his grace. That is what we mean by cheap grace. The grace which amounts to the justification of sin without the justification of the repentant sinner who departs from sin and from whom sin departs. Cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from the toils of sin. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. So, that's Bonhoeffer getting down to brass tacks. But what I want us to do is actually lift ourselves, be lifted by Jesus back into the heavenlies. Friends, what is the purpose of our freedom from sin? Certainly, as Paul describes it in negative potential usages, it's in our positive advertisement for the ready mercies of God. And then, of course, there's eternal salvation. The fact that by His grace, we have been made welcome into an everlasting life in the glories of heaven. Hallelujah! But, what was Bonhoeffer hinting at at the ending of that quotation? What would be a uh, costly grace rather than this cheap one? Well, I'll read you a few key phrases again. Listen. Following Christ. The repentant sinner who departs from sin and from whom sin departs. And then lastly, forgiveness of sin, which frees us from the toils of sin. Hebrews 5.9, when Jesus had been proved the perfect son, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who should obey him. Romans 16.25 and 27, now to him who is able to set you on your feet as his own sons, listen again, his own sons, to him I say, the only God who is wise, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Friends, our freedom from sin is not some sort of license. 
not some life wherein we cheapen what Jesus has done. Our freedom cost him everything. The perfect son, perfectly freeing us from the toil, power, and curse of sin, now demands that we come follow him. And in following him, and in learning the ways and means of the perfect son, he is setting us on our own feet as his own sons. You see, cheap grace lays back, it kind of rests a spell. Costly grace, true freedom, stands up and follows him. That, you see, is why Paul hates these rumors that are being ascribed to him. Because you see, he is in the middle of this costly grace, costing him everything. It is worth everything, but it also costs everything. Let's go on. Are we Jews then a march ahead of other men? By no means. For I have shown above that all men from Jews to Greeks are under the condemnation of sin. In other words, they are victims of the fall. The scriptures endorse this fact plainly enough. And these next verses, this is verse uh, 10b through 18, they are just the most interesting amalgam of verses from all around the Old Testament, from Ecclesiastes, Isaiah, and no less than six different Psalms, we read the following. Listen. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They have all turned aside. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not so much as one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That, according to Paul, is the fall. Like those are the natural fruits of the condemnation of sin. If you were paying attention, I doubt you were counting like I do sometimes. He gives us 14 lines of scripture that if you look at them and they're kind of disparate little couplets, almost perfectly tell us the seven strategies of Satan. And I'll tell you each And I'll even give you, too, the pair of lines that Paul provides. This is the way that Satan goes about his business. Here is his strategies. Number one, there is no God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is none who seeks after God. Number two, goodness isn't your natural state. There is none who does good. No, not one. There is none righteous. No, not one. Number three, hate is stronger than love. Their feet are swift to shed blood. There is none who understands. Number four, you belong to no one and nothing. Your life is without purpose. 
whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, they have together become unprofitable. Number five, sin is your norm. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. The world is chaos. You are chaos. That was number six. They have all gone out of the way and the way of peace they have not known. Finally, number seven, death is the only way this all ends. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Their throat is an open tomb. Kind of bleak. But friends, perhaps you'll recall just a few minutes ago when we talked about how God's old covenant message to his people also had seven parts. So now here's what I want you to do. Maybe close your eyes so you're really focusing and I want you to listen again now to Satan's plan and I want you to listen to the way that God's plan annihilates it. Are you ready? There is no God. I am Goodness isn't your natural state. I am good. Hate is stronger than love. I love you. You belong to no one and nothing. Your life is without purpose. You are mine. Sin is your norm. God says, I will redeem you. The world is chaos. You are chaos. No. It is life to follow me. Death is the only way this all ends. God says, we can be together forever. Friends, in fact, if I might, the way I want to end this, I want to read you out of this podcast with an absolute litany of his glory. Scriptures that take the place of all of Satan's little couplets from that section of 10 through 18. These would be the inversions and reversions that Jesus brought to invalidate everything about the fall, uh, the curse, all of sin and, and death. So again, maybe just close your eyes and listen to the glory of all that Jesus brought in all seven of the areas that God has kind of messaged his way through all human history. Here we go. A litany of glory. Here we go. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Therefore, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. 
For if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to hell or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Amen and amen.